My guest today is Andy Paul, and Andy is the author of Sell Without Selling Out. It's not his first uh, rodeo. It's, uh, I think it's your third book, Andy. Would that be right? It is. It's my third book, yes. Cool. Before we get into it and we talk about what prompted you to write it and who it's for, you maybe just tell me a little bit about where, where you grew up, sure. what that was like. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, which is in the middle of the United States, <clears throat> one of the northern Midwestern states. Um, yeah, yeah Madison's sort of a mid-sized city. Um, yeah, very unremarkable childhood <laughs> in many respects. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, as my dad worked for Oscar Mayer, which is a large meat packing company in the United States, and uh, they had actually moved around quite a bit before I was born. Uh, but after mm. I was born, they were sort of centered in, in Wisconsin. Mm. Until uh, right before my senior year of high school, where his company, Oscar Mayer, uh, invested in a Japanese company, and so I spent my senior year in high school in Japan because my dad went over to oh, run wow. this joint venture that was created. So, yeah, actually, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, graduated, went yeah. to American school in Tokyo, and and um, yeah. What was that like? like? What was that like as a uh, somebody from a Western country going to school? in a culture that's radically different, I would imagine. I've never been to Japan, always wanted to go, but my impression is it's, from a cultural perspective, it's, it's not like going from, say, the States to the UK or Australia or somewhere else. It's radically yeah. different. What was that like? Uh, it, was, it was an adjustment. I mean, it was, for one, is, is if nothing else, is you know, we lived in the center of Tokyo and the school was about an hour and a half away by train. Wow. So commuted back and forth every day with a bunch of kids that <laughs> uh, sons and daughters, you know, expats are working in, in mm. Tokyo. We'd all see each other on the subway platforms or the trains and and head out to school. So, yeah, going from living within a couple miles of school and, and uh, driving myself to school every day to hopping on, let's see, uh, three different, four different trains to get to school uh, was a different experience. For sure. How how long did you do that for? So I was just there for my last year of high school. Um, oh, okay. And then went back summers because my parents were still living there. So I went back summers and worked several summers in Tokyo as a, there's a it was a large club called the Tokyo American Club for business people, expatriates, and mm. um, yeah, I coached swimming swimming team and uh, was the lifeguard for several summers. So it's just yeah, for that was home for a few years, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me it was transformative. I mean, I was mm -hmm. hadn't really traveled extensively before that. You know, some in the United States, but yeah, it mm -hmm. just uh, set me on a different course in my life. I'm sure. How much of that experience factored into the path you chose after that, and how you've ended up where you are today? Um, well, I think if I, I think if I hadn't. <laughs> I hadn't gone away to Japan. I probably would have stayed in Wisconsin, married my high school sweetheart, and yeah, life would have been different. Uh, I think that's mm -hmm. more than anything else probably would have been the the, the difference in path. But mm. I think it, it um, yeah, encouraged me to be more know, expansive in my thinking about geez, yeah. what I wanted to do after high school and the type of university I wanted yeah. to go to and perhaps what life would be like after that. I held vision at some point of saying, yeah, I'd like to go live and work overseas. And that 
that never really happened, though I've traveled extensively overseas as part of my work. So mm. got a lot of that. Mm. And so certainly mm. that appetite was whetted by, by living overseas. And how did you end up going for, you said you did some part-time work in lifeguards. How did you go from there to working in sales where you've got, you're carrying a bag, got a quota? Right. Like a lot of people, just fell into it. There was no plan. Uh, you know, I graduated university. I literally did not have a plan about what I was going to do, much to the dismay of my parents. And so I sort of worked at the university where I graduated from for a few months, uh, thinking, oh, maybe I'd work at the university and get into the administration. And then it's like, no, no, that's, that yeah, seemed too cloistered. So uh, yeah, I went to the Career Placement Center on campus. And at the time, the big tech companies of the day, IBM, Burroughs, Xerox, so on, were all heavily recruiting. And it's funny, they didn't label the jobs sales jobs. They're all called marketing management training jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, gosh, even then, decades ago, they were embarrassed to call anything sales. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I you know, hired on with Burroughs at the time, the second largest computer company in the world. And, and as you said, mm. start off making a lot of cold calls mm. out in the field. I noticed a comment you made uh, on it was either a website or a book cover about you were considered not salesy enough, which right. seemed to define your... Talk to me about that. Well, yeah, I write about this in, in the book. Is, is After I'd been on board with Burroughs for a couple weeks, we were sent to our first sales training class, and they had these regional training centers in the United States. And I was one in Southern California, and, and um, yeah, for two weeks, we are sort of taught mm. how to sail, and we were looking doing a lot of role plays and watching this extensive video series they had purchased from somewhere. And yeah, I just remember looking at that first and thinking, yeah, what, what human being acts this way? <laughs> I mean, it was just like, this is, this can't be real. And um, yeah, I was sort of out of my comfort zone with the role plays because kind of introverted individual. And, and so when the evaluation of of my performance in the training class was sent back to my manager. Yeah, they basically said, no way he's gonna make it in sales, he's not, he's too analytical, was really the summary. Hmm. So for me, that was like, sort of wake up moment and was like, okay, um, yeah, I'm gonna show them wrong, sort of was one of it, right? And prove them wrong. But also knowing that other part was, yeah, I, I can't act the way that, that they prescribed in these videos, you know, the super salesy behaviors and so on. It's just like, not me. So I really determined almost from the beginning of my career is, is yeah, there had to be a way that would work for me. And wh what did you discover? <laughs> it wasn't instantaneous. It was just a lot of experimentation. But, you know, I had a chance to sort of reflect. It was like, okay, well, here I was fresh out of school, knew nothing about business. I was selling computers to business owners. Uh, at the time, this was oftentimes these businesses' first computers, first steps to computerize mm. their, their, their books, their accounting systems, and so on. Selling into the construction industry, so selling to a, to a hardened group of people. Knew nothing. I looked, I was 21, I looked 16. Um, right. It's like, why did they, why did these people give me time? Yeah. Why did they spend any time with me? Why did they invest their time and attention? 
and it yeah. began to dawn on me is because I was interested, right? I was curious. Ooh. I was sincerely interested in learning. And it's sort of that light bulb moment is like, oh, yeah, it's like, uh, even though I don't know everything now that I really need to know about their business and so on, yeah, I'll, I'll learn that. I can't learn it all instantly. But if I just show up and be human, then Ooh. people will respond to that. Ooh. Would it be fair to say as well, because you didn't fit the mold of the stereotype that when you approach people, you weren't triggering the 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 ingrained defensiveness to the stereotype. <laughs> Sometimes I'm sure I did, but because mm. you know you walk into some businesses and you, at the day we we all wore mm. three piece dark suits with white shirts and <laughs> red power ties, so there's a different era. There was no mistaking who we were when we walked in the door. So uh, I remember. This wasn't in the book, but a story where I, early on, I was out going on calls with a more senior salesperson, and, and we walk in the door of this building. But as we approach the door, this big sign on the door, you know, no solicitors, meaning no salespeople, right? Um, and he just breezes right past it, and I'm yep. like, "Whoa, whoa, what? What did we walk in?" The sign just, says, "Yeah," and. and you know, we walk into the, the lobby of the building, and this receptionist looks at us. She knows instantly, right, that we're, we're selling something. And she says, can't you read? And the guy is with, <laughs> his name was Gary. I always remember his response. His response says, he says, yeah. He says, but here's the thing. We're not here to sell you anything. I'm here to help the business owner make more money. Do you think you'd be interested in that? That's interesting. And did it work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it did. And for me, that was like an eye-opening thing. Is like, not only are we not, you know, how you position yourself, but also, mm. you know, position the mission of, of what you're doing. Yeah. And, and take pride in it, right? Own it. Mm. Mm. And was there a pivotal moment in your career, Andy, where you decided to get into the business you're in today? And if so, what was that moment that said, okay, I'm going to go into the business now where I'm, I'm helping others reach their their own potential and their goals. Yeah, there's sort of two steps into that. One is uh, when I started my own company originally was um, I'd been, gosh, for the prior 15 years, been traveling extensively around the world internationally, selling large, complex satellite communication systems to big enterprises. And, uh, yeah, on the, on the personal life is, is I had missed my daughter's birthday like her ninth birthday. Mm. And I thought, wow, I'd sworn to myself I was never going to do that because of work. You're never going to miss a family thing, miss an important event. It really triggered the thought in me. It's like, yeah, I need to have more control over my schedule. And so I looked back at what I had been doing and the successes I'd had and, and really what had been sort of my specialty is helping startups, small companies, learn how to compete selling large, complex products and services against big companies and winning. Mm. So mm. I thought, okay, if I want more control over my schedule, I need to start my own thing. What can I do? Well, this is, this is a real expertise I have. I'm going to go off, you know, hang up my shingle and, and mm. go offer my services to other companies. Mm. Mm. And so really I wonder for, how, 
Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I wonder how much of that, because it parallels the experience I had where my son, who was eight at the time, and I was getting ready some Sunday afternoon to go away on another plane trip, and he was crying, and he says, Daddy, why do you have to go away again? And that, to me, was a pivotal moment, like a catalyst. But but then when you sit down, is you're kind of going, okay, what do I really want to do? And that, and, and, and basically, what I'm saying is, to me, it uncovered, unearthed something that was already bubbling under the surface, but because I was just too busy, I never got mm -hmm. to deal with. And I'm just curious to know if that was similar for you. It, it took a little while, actually. So... Mm. Um, so yeah, I started my own company in 2000, and, and for me, probably the more pivotal moment for on the path I'm on now in terms of writing books and blogging and public speaking and so on was really in 2010. Uh, I got married for the second time, actually to a high school sweetheart from Tokyo that I had met, a, a woman whose family had been there on business as well. Mm -hmm. And she was in New York, and I was in San Diego, and... She had what we call the real job here in, in New York. So I determined, okay, I would move to, to New York from San Diego. Having done that, then I was sort of like, okay, now what? And I'd always had this idea about writing a book. And she, my wife was incredibly supportive and said, yeah, go do that. You know, write that book, get it out. Yep. And so I did. And that sort of, at first you thought, hey, this is like, Everybody that writes a book, sort of like a calling card as your consultant. Hey, I've got my book. Mm. But actually, sort of had an audience, and then you know led to a second book, and then I started the podcast, and mm. yeah, yeah, thousand yeah. fifty episodes later. And I was just going to say, you've got a phenomenal podcast in terms of the 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 quantity of podcasts you've done, and also the show notes. I don't know anybody else who writes such comprehensive show notes. Um, who do you have on your podcast? What's the goal with the podcast? <laughs> yeah, it's, I wish I could say it's more deliberate than it is, but it's really just, for me, it's talking to people that I find interesting, that I think mm. have something interesting that, to share and something that I'd be interested in learning about. Yeah. Know, for me, the podcast has been, as I like to call it, you know, the most selfish thing I've done in my career because where else do you get the opportunity to talk to hundreds of really smart people that have interesting, unique things to say about sure. this profession you're in? And, yeah. and I've benefited immeasurably mm. From, mm. from talking to them. So, yeah. yeah. How much of, sorry, there's a bit of a delay, Andy, my apologies. I was gonna ask oh. you how much of, in terms of the conversations you have in your podcast have fed into your book, Sell Without Selling Out? Certainly influenced. Yeah, mm. because you know, part of part of what motivated me to write that book was just this the sense and belief that we're just not getting any better <laughs> at selling, and it seems like with the advantages we have of all the technology that continue to appear both on the, the sales side and the marketing side, that we should be doing it better, and yet we still seem to be relying on techniques and processes and so on that basically have existed for decades. And we haven't really tried to use the technology to redefine how we engage with our buyers in a way that, that helps them make better decisions. So sort of 
yeah, a lot of that flowed out of the conversations and the work I do with companies to say, yeah, it's got to be a better way. Okay, so so here's the thing, and I think you're you're right, is that if you look at the stats of the percentage of any sales rep population who make the most number of deals or who make quote, mm -hmm. etc., those numbers haven't moved. In fact, if anything, they're probably declined. They're going in the wrong direction over yes. the last. But but we've never had as much in terms of training, coaching options. Everything, you can have it online now if you want to. There's any number of books. There's all the sales tech you can throw your stick at. Why do you think, if you were to boil it down, is to why isn't it getting better? <laughs> there are multiple factors. I think one is that's perhaps most prevalent, and it depends on sort of the industry segments you're talking about, but is this over-reliance on technology, meaning that... Mm. that yeah, we can make this whole process more predictable, but in the, in the way we do that is we make ourselves less effective. And so yes, is I can, I can create a predictable process, but the net result is going to be, as, as a study that I just uh, read uh, in a, a new book that came out called Strikingly Different Selling, where the authors uh, did some pretty extensive research, and they found that yeah, across multiple industries, you know, average B2B win rate, 17%. So out of most qualified opportunities, we're closing less than one in five, which is mirrored data that I had seen and had come across as well. And it's like, so yeah, we can make that pretty predictable that we'll only close one out of six or one out of five of our <laughs> most qualified opportunities, but that's, so what? Just, is mm. that predictably good or predictably bad? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's, I think, again, I think part of this is just this reliance on, hey, if we just automate for these processes, mm. then, hey, we're modern, we're good, we're better. And I look at it and say, well, no, all we're doing is, is automating previously bad behaviors. Mm. And in the process, we then amplify them, mm. and <laughs> we're not improving. I, I often wonder about this, Andy, because you know I've been doing in this business twenty years, and mm. I know if I walked into any classroom in the morning, I would see the exact same as I saw twenty years ago, um, despite the spend. Right. And I, I, I've I've often wondered is because you then you look at the people who are who get it, who are really good, who are making money and and making a difference, mm -hmm. and there, there's a few things they often have in common. Apart from traits, like they'll have, they'll be hardworking. Obviously, they'll have ambition and drive. They have discipline. Things you can't necessarily train, right. and you can't find an answer to in a book. That have to be they're prerequisites, you know, of of success. But right. there are other things as well. I often think that people who who get it very often, if you look at their growing up, uh, they learned a lot about life and about people on the street as kids playing with others just to normal everyday play that isn't over-supervised, over-protective, they climbed trees, they fell down, they played sports, and that through all of that, they, they, they learn and have an instinctive understanding to what makes people tick. And then they're able to apply that in a sales role, where people without that, again, this, I have no, there's no, <laughs> no data on this whatsoever, it's just an opinion, and I wonder right. about it, and I wanted to get your take on it, because you then see others who, even though when you 
when, when, when you give it to them in terms, look, people don't care about your products, they don't care about the features, they don't care about the data, they care about what difference it's going to make to them, it's an emotional thing and so on and so right. on. Some then kind of go, oh yeah, I get it now, and then others, no. I just, you know, through all your years experience and talking to people, and then you obviously have to analyze a lot of that to put it into words on a book. Is, what am I missing? Because I, I know I'm missing something because I, I still don't get it. I'm just smiling because you're bringing that up because I, I think along similar lines. Mm. Is, you know, someone, you know, once asked me, you know, what's the cause of bad salesmanship? And I was somewhat facetious when I said this, but I said bad parenting. And, you know, I think about my own experience is when I was a kid and my parents had parties or so on, they would, you know, used to dress us up and trot us out. And mm. when I was younger, I used to think, oh, there's, yeah, showing us off, right? Because we were polite and, and so on. And, but actually, there was more to it than that. Because what mm. my parents had done is they were teaching us to have conversations with adults, you know, where there's a real status mismatch between us and the other person. And, mm. And have conversations with people in these these settings, and I think that's hugely important. And I it, I'm I've talked to my siblings said, okay, was this intentional on their part, you know, to, to put us in those positions? And I think in part it was. Mm. Um, mm. And I sort of tried to do the same with with my kids is is you know be able to put themselves into a situation, have a conversation, be interested in the other person. Ask mm. them a question. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's the the solution to everything. But I just, from my own own mm. you know sort of upbringing, that that sort of struck. But I think I think you're on to something. I think that that it's just different, oftentimes these days with kids in terms of how they socialize, how they communicate, mm. and not just. Uh, put a judgment one way or another, it's just, it's just different, right? It's, they're not spending hours on the phone as we did. They're spending hours, mm. you know, asynchronously messaging with people yeah. uh, online. But it's, that's, that's different, right? Is when you get into mm. the world, when you actually have to have conversations with people, is maybe it takes a little bit longer to adopt some of those skills um, and learn them. Yeah. So I, I think that, that, yeah, how we're raised, mm. yeah, the environment we grew up in, has an impact, mm. and and I think just if people can, uh, you know, think about environments where you actually have real world interaction with people, mm. is and I think that's because the end of the day, I mean, business we're in, we ultimately end up talking to people, right? Yeah, and we're not we're not unless we're selling something really transactional, people can buy without us. But if we're in a business, we're selling something where we actually have to talk to a human. Mm. Yeah, you need to have those skills. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I also think school doesn't help either. I, I know there's a, a friend of mine, George Gleason, uh, who lives in San Francisco, and he said to me years ago, he says, Paul, he says, uh, uh, C students make the best salespeople. And I said, what do you mean by that? And the, the bit he left out was C students, but with the aptitude of an Abe student. <laughs> yeah. But but who are too busy doing their own things and they're just, just doing enough to pass right. their exams. And, and I, I often give thought to that and said that there's people who, who 
their identities tied up in getting A's the whole time. They're too busy following other people's rules. Now, that's a huge generalization, and I'm sure there's well, no, no, massive no, there's, exceptions there's, to it. No, but, there's research. There's research about that, though. Okay. So, yeah, so if you want to read a book by Eric Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R, -E the book is called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and, and it's this fascinating book about success mm. and studies about success. And so one of the studies, just to your point precisely, they've done is they've tracked how well high school valedictorians, so the person in the U.S. That, that's the number one ranked student in their, their class is called the valedictorian. They get to speak at the commencement of um, services, ceremonies. And so they tracked how well valedictorians did in real life. And what they found mm. out is they actually didn't, <laughs> they didn't do as well in real life as they did outside. Because in high school, in college, they knew what the rules were, mm. right? And the rules were pretty clearly laid out. And so being real rule followers enabled them to succeed in those environments. But you get out in the real world where there's much more ambiguity and the rules aren't as clear cut is these high performers academically generally couldn't perform as well. Mm. That would make a lot of sense, or, unless maybe they're in jobs where, like accountancy or something like that, where the rules are pretty clear. Sure. But certainly when you've got to go out and make the rules, or, or, or even further, break the rules. Break the rules, um, right? Yeah. As, yeah. As, yeah. as successful sellers oftentimes do. Um, yeah. In yeah. ethical ways. <laughs> this is, you know, people sure. like, I always say that. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, unethical. I said, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, yeah. for me, is is yeah, I always sort of broke the rules. Mm. That's to me is the hallmark of top sellers mm. is that, you know, here's our process. Well, okay, great, mm. but the sales process was thought up by somebody that didn't ever encounter the situation I'm in. So we're sure. gonna do something different. Yeah, tell me about the the selling out, selling without selling out. What <laughs> what does that speak to? Well, selling out by definition is when you as a salesperson put your interest ahead of those of the buyer, right? And right. as soon as that happens, you start selling out because then you start indulging in these manipulative, pushy, persuasion-driven behaviors that buyers instinctively resist. Mm. And I frame it in the book as, as we sort of do a real disservice to sellers because so much of the training they're given and the socialization they're given about their job is your job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product. It's like, well, no, that's not your job at all. And the fact is this type of training which existed decades ago is still fundamentally what's taught today. Your job as a seller is not that. Your job as a seller is to listen to your buyers, understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. And that's, Gonna, that's going to encompass a different way of approaching the buyers and dealing with your buyers than if, you know, the persuasion-driven one, which the selling out way, which, as I say, it's, that's a sort of stereotypical, uh, you're selling hammers and all the world's a nail. How do you square that away, Andy, with the environment that I'll, I'm going to say a lot, I don't have a number on a lot, uh, of salespeople work in where their managers, as soon as they have a call, how did the call go? Is it in the pipeline? Is that a commit? And all the pressure is on, when, when's it going to close? Um, yeah. well, and and how, 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 do you, how do you operate in that environment without 
that pressure spilling over into how you engage with prospects? Well, I think this boils down to the individual to a large extent, is saying, mm -hmm. look, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not how I'm going to operate. Right, one of the great responses to the book so far has been just the outpouring of people saying, "Wow, yeah, I feel validation that actually I can I can sell my own way, and still hit my number." And I think that's that is sort of one of the real key lessons is that, yeah, managers sort of default, and it starts with managers default to this idea is, what you're saying sounds great, but I've got a number hit. So if I've got a number hit, I've got to be super salesy. Right, that's the only way we're gonna hit our numbers. Act in a way that buyers hate, um, and it's just not true. Yeah, mm. it's, it's not just my experience; it's experience of many, many people saying, "Look, no, if I really focus on the buyer, if I help the buyer really understand what the challenges they're facing, and really help them understand the outcomes they can achieve," I lay this out in the book. Actually, you you shorten their decision cycles. You mm. you get to the point where they're gonna say yeah, this works for me, and make a decision. You know, this whole idea of, that I've experienced through my career, I'd be interested to hear what you said, is you found in yours, is that buyers make the good enough decision. Right? Herbert Simon, Nobel mm -hmm. Prize winning economist, researched this extensively and said, look, when people are making decisions, companies, is they'll research the alternatives that exist until they find one that suffices to meet the requirements or satisfies the requirements and suffices to enable them to hit their desired outcomes. Mm. And he created this new word called satisfice. Mm. So when people research solutions until they find one that satisfices, they stop and they make a decision. Yep. This is good enough. Because they say, look, this is even more true today than when he was doing this research back 40 years ago is that you know the differences between products are so slim right mm -hmm. and every again hyper competitive markets it could be software or whatever in the mind's eye of the buyer look basically the products are indistinguishable is they make this calculation it's like well this is good enough if mm. i spend another 30 days or 60 days to keep researching invest more time and attention the marginal gain i get from that is zero mm. so this is good enough, let's do it. Yeah. And when I first came across that research, which was oh, about 20 years or so ago, I mean, it, for me, it was like head exploding moment because I was like, oh my God, this is what was happening <laughs> all the time when I was selling. It's like, finally, we have words to put to, to your experiences. As I said, it's sort of this amazing moment. Is yeah, yeah, oftentimes I ran into with customers and selling you know, seven, eight-figure deals where, hey, we're ready to go. And it's like, well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we didn't get all the way through yeah. our process. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, is that customers do that? So what I lay out in the book is, is there's these milestones you can identify as a seller that will help you enable the buyer to get to that point. Mm. And Forrester, the big research firm, actually did a study about this within the last 10 years, I think it was about eight or nine years ago, that said, look, yeah, if you are that vendor that basically reaches that point first with the buyer, your odds of winning were like at 60%. Mm. 
So I, I, I'd like to talk to you about this because as you're talking it through, I'm kind of in my head, I'm going through, um, I'm testing it out, not, not, not to argue with it, but just to understand sure. it. And like, like a lot of things, when we communicate, we have to communicate simply, but when we step back, there's more nuance to it. And the, the, the term you said, good enough, and I was thinking that through and I thought, well, do you apply that, say, for example, when you're buying a car? And my initial reaction was, actually, you don't, because, well, a good enough would be maybe a banger that would just get you from A to B. But maybe then what I was thinking of is within the categories that are acceptable to us or that we desire, there's a good enough standard. So, for example, if you want a, a luxury sports car, for example, is that, that that sets a baseline. And then within that, what I was thinking, there's a good enough. Does it have to have every commodity, every, every uh, feature gizmo in it? No, it doesn't. It has to meet the standard of what's good enough for me as a luxurious sports car, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, is that, is that fair? That's the way I was thinking it through when you said well, it. Well, let let's let's dig into it because what what mm. Simon said in his research, he, had, he has this thing that he developed called the theory of bounded rationality, and he said that when people make decisions, they inevitably have three constraints. They don't have access to unlimited time to make the decision. Mm. They don't have access to uh, unlimited perfect information with which to make the decision, and they don't have perfect understanding of the information that they get. So given those three constraints we all have, that's the way he's coming about. It's not that it's not that you make a quick decision, but you reach a point where you're saying, given the constraints I have, mm. this is good enough. Now, mm. he said there are people or decisions even within people that he called maximizers. And maximizers will evaluate every single alternative that's available to ensure themselves that they're making the absolute best choice. And within us, we are all satisficers and maximizers, right? When it comes to a healthcare decision that's you know, life-threatening, we're probably maximizers. You know, we're going to investigate all of our alternatives. Yes. Buying a car, you. we're probably satisficers. So, but cars, for instance, is in the U.S. And I think this is because statistics are a couple years old, so it may even change since then. But you know, the average number of auto dealerships that a customer would visit before purchasing a car was one. Mm. <laughs> That's right. So. Uh, yeah, people are making a good enough decision. Right? I've done my research online. I've yeah. looked at it. I'm going to go to one. I'm not going to look at every car. I'm not going to test drive every car. This yeah. one's good enough. And yeah. and it doesn't mean good enough doesn't mean you're accepting less than. You've determined, yeah, this is going to satisfy my requirements and it's going to suffice for me to hit my goals. That's good enough. That's really a mm. positive thing. Mm. Uh, so it's not about settling. It's about actually an affirmative mm. decision. This works, mm. and I could spend a lot more time trying to find something that works better, and it's just not going to be worth it. Mm. Where do you draw the line then? You talked a moment ago about uh, the role in selling is to help people come to a decision, to provide service, provide value. To me, there's a flip side to that. There is, yes, there's, there's a yes but, and the but is making sure, first of all, that that they want help, they need help, 
and also that they're not just messing you around, that you're column fodder for a choice they've already made. Right. And that, and, and so, to, yeah, I, I wanted to understand how you, how you introduce people to that side of the equation, that it's not all just be a helper, otherwise we all join the Red Cross, if that's all we wanted to do is help people. There's, there's more yeah, to it I mean, than that. Right, I mean, the fact is that, that uh, and I think Adam Grant used this expression in his book, Give and Take, is that we're, we need to be givers with an agenda, right? Mm. And the agenda is, we're, we're gonna succeed only if you succeed, but I'm here to mm. succeed, right? Mm. So my path to getting what I want lies with helping you get what's most important to you. And and by that, then you align. If you're just showing up, you know, there's this this thought in sales about people who are quote unquote givers being bad, and there are what I call unrestrained givers, people that don't really want to engage with the buyer. And I'm just going to keep showering you with with crap, hoping something sticks at some point, something resonates mm. with you. Yeah, right. That doesn't work. The thing is, you're there for a specific purpose, is to help the buyer achieve something that's really important to them. If they're not prepared to do that, then yeah, you need to have the ability to disqualify those opportunities and come back to them at a later time if the timing's not right or whatever. But mm. you, as a seller at the end of the day, as you know, you only have so much time. So you have to protect that time zealously. Mm. And so for me, and I didn't deal with this so much in this book, I did in my previous book, uh, Amp Up Your Sales, is you have to be ruthless in disqualifying people that aren't prepared to move forward. And that's one of your obligations as a seller. I said, it's, you really need to sort of picture yourself like being the, the bouncer at the head of the velvet <laughs> rope, you know, to people trying to get into a club outside is, yeah. Just because somebody mm. says they're interested in buying your product doesn't mean they get into your club. I like that, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, so it's not just about, it, you know, the, the message is being true to yourself. That's about not selling out um, mm. and, and not trying to be something that you're not. But at the same time, what I'm hearing is that it's also important to work on yourself so that who you are is not a, it's not a static thing. It's not something that exactly. is, just remains flat right, throughout your career. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes in the book from an American philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who wrote, you know, all life is an experiment. The more experiment you make, you make the better. And, yes. you know, that to me is such an important <laughs> philosophy to have. I mean, uh, yeah, another one, to your point about learning and constantly learning is, is uh, one from Thomas Huxley, who was a you know, famous British writer in the late 19th century who said that, you know, basically in life your goal should be to learn something about everything and everything about something. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's, that's what we should try to do is, you know, we should try to mm -hmm. become well-read, widely read, not just about, you know, the products we sell and the services we sell, but the world and the world our, our customers operate in and read about our customers and the businesses mm -hmm. they're in and just keep learning, you know, every mm. day, spend time mm. um, reading, you're, you're reading widely. You're, well, you're, on that subject, Andy, you're clearly a, a very prolific reader. 
and I can understand 100% why your own books have, you're, you're most attached to, have most meaning for you. Put those to one side for a moment. Sure. Is there a book that you read that had a profound impact on you and how you thought about the world? And if so, could you share that with us? What, what it was that made you feel differently? Hmm. Um, none, not one that stands out, actually. It's just there's, you know, I, I, I tell people, it's like salespeople ask me, what should I read? You know, I want to get become a mm. better communicator. I tell them, well, read Shakespeare. <laughs> is, is, you know, learn about language. Yes. Language is important. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, I think Shakespeare actually has mm. had a lot of influence on me. Um, and I re mm. love reading, you know, critical, you know, essays and, and writings about, about Shakespeare. Um, yeah. You know, Harold Bloom from Yale wrote this great book called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, which contends that basically mm. our, our idea of what relationships and love and other ideas, Western, modern Western ideas, really all stem from Shakespeare. Sort of interesting, you might want to know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. and they're just books I read all the time that I learn interesting things from, you know, whether it's, you know, Adam Grant, I love Adam Grant's books, uh, Charles Duhigg, Dan Pink, you know, people that are writing about business and decision-making and productivity in ways that, that mm. In sales, mm. we really need to think about because I think we really are mm. behind in sales and the way we conceive of these ideas. You know, in sales, productivity still means how many calls did you make, as yeah. opposed to productivity in, in the real world, which is a rate of output per unit of input. Which is, you know, for me, at bottom line sales is productivity is dollars of revenue we generate per hour of actual selling time. And if we know that, then we know lot of information about how effective we are in sales. What do you wish you could change the most about sales industry? Well, it really, it's the theme of this book is, is, you know, we could draw a line in the sand and say, look, all these salesy behaviors that the buyers instinctively resist, because um, we know, and I refer to this in the book, uh, from research done that humans universally resist attempts to be persuaded. Right, and I draw a distinction in the book between persuasion and influence, and how you approach them differently. But take these sales behaviors, these manipulative techniques that we've taught sellers for years. We could draw a line in the sand today and say, "Look, we're just going to stop them, cold turkey." Yeah, you know, every sales force in the world, not going to happen anymore. And the result would be, no salesperson would be worse off because of that. No salesperson would be worse off for not being able to be salesy, manipulative, and so on. So, let's just stop. Yeah. Yeah, it's not serving anybody. Not serving anybody. And if it doesn't serve you, and it doesn't serve mm. your buyers, why are you doing mm. it? Well, it's because mm. that's the way you've been socialized. And, and the thing is, it's not all about sales training that's training it. You know, it's just something in the in our popular culture, how we portray sales professionals and so on, that that exists. You know, I was talking to a, a professor at a university in the United States, who, uh, Kansas State University, a woman named Dawn Dieter Schmelz. She runs uh, the sales program there. Uh, so th we're probably behind the times in the States, but more and more universities now are starting to offer undergraduate degrees in, in sales, which is great. So she talks about her program, and hers is one of the biggest and, and most prominent in this regard. 
and she talks about teaching her first year sellers, first year students, uh, introduction professional selling. And so these kids, no background sales, no exposure to it really. On a professional level, they do role plays. And she said the thing that's striking when you do the role plays is that all the sellers default to being, all the students default to being super salesy, even though they've never been trained in it. And it's sort of like, oh, interesting, right? What's, where, where are they picking up this idea that this is how you have to be? And, you know, it's, it's there, right? It's, it's sort of out there as this idea is that selling is about, as these students are sort of evincing, is, is that selling is about trying to convince somebody to do something they don't want to do. Hmm. I wonder if it's human nature, Andy, because I, I was at a c conference. And I, again, like yourself, I've been doing this a long time. And I know it's not about the product, about the features, all of that good stuff, right? I remember going in and seeing a talk and a demonstration about this new, it was a playbook software that, yeah, creating playbooks and how it helped people to absorb and integrate sales training into their organization mm -hmm. and, 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 and help change behavior and so on. I remember coming out of it after an hour just, this is it, this, this is exactly what we need. And going up to one of my colleagues and said, were you in at the, the demonstration? He said, no. I said, let me tell you about it. And I just launched straight into the what. Here's mm -hmm. what it was. And, and I, was, I was halfway through it, I thought, what am I like? I never <laughs> said any context for it. I never right. said, here's, here's what it will do even before I launched into the what. None of that. It was just, here's what it is. And I could see the eyes glaze over on my colleague who hadn't been in there and hadn't had that time to warm up and mm -hmm. get into it and all of that good, good stuff. And so, you know, at my age with the experience and so on, and the fact I do this for a living, could just naturally fall into that because I came from a place of enthusiasm and excitement. Mm -hmm. And the natural state for that, how we express that, seems to me to be very different than when we're in a curious state. And, and, and consciously holding back on our natural desire to say, but look, it's wonderful, it's fantastic. Here, hold it. I, I'm, I guess I'm asking the question, is it just human nature? It's a good point. I don't know. I don't mm. know. I mean, I think that, that, I mean, to think about the story you just told is, is yeah, you were telling, you actually were telling a story. You weren't selling so much, right? You were, you were trying to convey something, unless you were trying to convince this just colleague that, hey, they had the purse strings, mm. let's go buy this. Because um, I would bet that if you thought, okay, I'm gonna go talk to this colleague, and they do have the budget responsibility for this type of product, you probably would approach it differently. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Yeah. But that yeah. my point is that there's the innate natural state is to explain, but then the considered, yeah. trained, conditioned state is to, to hold that back and start where your prospect is. Right. And well, right. So think about yes to that point precisely. Think about the way that that oftentimes sellers are trained, which is, hey, selling's a transfer of enthusiasm, right? I think Zig Ziglar <laughs> mm. said that at some point, right? Mm. Transfer yep. of enthusiasm, or somebody said it. Um, which, sure, is true, but at the right time, mm. right? 
when are you transferring that enthusiasm? And yeah. to your point is you have to meet the buyer where they are. Yeah. And so yeah, I think that yeah. that we have this this challenge is and I try to address this a little bit in the book is like that enthusiasm sort of comes to the fore because you know we tell people it's like this product's so great, people be foolish not to buy it. And so they think, oh, well, if I just go out and express my enthusiasm about how great this product is, that's going to be contagious. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really work that way. You might find somebody yeah. that works with, but by and large, yeah. you're going to be talking to people who you've interrupted, who are, have lots of things they're thinking about, and yeah. your enthusiasm is going to be misplaced. Yeah, yeah. Your, your enthusiasm might be seen as others as you're they're crazy, as in, you know, what's this person on? I can understand, you see, I can understand if I was telling you about a beer that I tasted and I was really enthusiastic about it or a, a, a sunset I'd seen, then it becomes, it's almost like I'm the product, not the sunset or not the beer, because what your experience is, the end result of that, which is the delight I'm experiencing, that's very different to, let me tell you about this playbook software. But at the end, yeah. it's sort of the same, right? Because, and this is a point I make in the book, is increasingly these days, when the differences between products are perceived to be so thin, and Challenger and Gartner and Forrester have written about this as well, is, is what is the difference? Well, the mm. difference is the buyer's experience with you as a seller. Mm. The yeah. products are perceived to be the same. On what basis are we making our decision? What contributes mm. to that? Well, I think Challenger, they said 53% of the buyer's decision is based on their experience with the seller. Mm. Okay, yeah, 53, 52, whatever. It seems a little precise, but the fact is, is that a, a significant portion of the decision, and I think the way sellers should look at it is that the buyer's experience with you, all things being equal, the buyer's experience with you is the tiebreaker. Mm. You're so right on that. You know, it's, I remember going into, are you familiar, familiar with, you said you're in New York at the moment. Are you familiar with B&H? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that's my, uh, like my candy store when, when I go to New York, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and uh, I went in there one day a few years ago, and I went in to buy a lav mic. Mm -hmm. oh, I beg your pardon, I went in to buy uh, what I thought was a transponder because my, that was going to record a class and send it to my laptop, and it was going to record. Right. So I went in and this guy comes over, a store assistant, and he, he didn't say, can I help you? That was the first thing, which is interesting. He said, uh, what brings you in today? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I told him, and he said, come, come over here for a second. I followed him over and he said, uh, how much were you looking to spend? And I said, ah, a couple of hundred bucks. And he says, I don't think you need to spend that much. He said, uh, can I suggest something? I said, sure. And he, he, he took out this little, tiny little pocket recorder he says, this will slip in your pocket. There's no need to transmit it back to your laptop. You can put, slip this in nowadays. They're so small, you won't notice. Right. And, he says, and he says, come over here. He says, I want to sell you a lav mic. It was the, I, was, I really noted the language. I want to sell you. And I had no problem with it. Mm -hmm. And he said, the, the lav, what, and, he, and he explained to me what that was going to do. It was a little thing you put on your tie and, and so on. Yep. And so I got chatting to him afterwards. And he said to me, what do you do for a living? And I told him. And he said, it's interesting, he says, that I don't sell anything in this store. He says, look around. I don't sell anything in here. 
He says, anything you can see here, he says, you can go across the road and get in a different store. He says, what I'm selling is the experience you've had where you come in here, maybe not quite sure what the rest right choice is and you can trust somebody who's going to help you navigate your way through that choice without screwing you over. And interestingly enough, he told me that they didn't get paid commission on each individual sale. And the reason for that was that they didn't want their customers thinking that they were, they were thinking about their commission when right. they were selling a product, which I thought was interesting as well. But it was the whole idea, he knew exactly what he was selling, what the product was. It was him and the trust he had built, not the stuff you could buy in there, like the, the Nikon Absolutely. camera or the AV, whatever it was. And uh, so how was that why big do, lesson? Why do, why do buyers want to talk to sellers? Because there's all this research that came out during the pandemic. It's like, oh, we're all remote. We don't need to meet in person. Buyers, mm. eh, they don't even mm. want to talk to sellers anymore. It's like, well, no, that's not really true. Mm. They don't want to talk to sellers who can't help them the way this person helped you. Mm. Right? What they mm. need is they need somebody who can help them think more deeply and broadly about the challenges they face, help them think more deeply and broadly about the outcomes they potentially could achieve. If you can help them do that, give them a new insight, new perspective, they're all for it. We'll spend the time. Yep. Can't yep. do that. I don't have time for you. And that's that's yep. always been the case. We somehow have this myth <laughs> that exists that, you know, 30 years ago, business people had nothing but time. Yeah, come waste my time if you're a salesperson, right? Such BS. That was never the case. Right? For sure. It's always been the, the case that that you had to bring something to the party. Mm. that gave the buyer a return on the investment they made of their time and attention in you. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, unfortunately, we're out of time. I could talk about this to you all day long. Um, this has been fun. Of, Thank you. I, I, no, no, my, my pleasure. It's, as I said, it's been most, most of my professional life, and uh, I enjoy talking about it. And, and there's always something you get in every conversation that kind of gets you to go, hmm. I didn't look at it that way. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so thank you for that. A couple of quick questions I, I sure. do ask everybody who comes on the sure. podcast. And they're not necessarily, none of, they're not related to sell without selling out. They're personal to That's you. Great. So, great. so the, the first one is the house on fire question. Your house is on fire. Your family are safe. If you have any pets, they're safe. Your computer, uh, phone, are, they're, they're safe. You have time to run back into the burning building and rescue one thing. What would it be and why? Well, gosh, of all that, everybody else is safe. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I have anything else that's really that important. I mean, family No photos, sentimental Those are all digital. Item. Yeah. yeah the, so, yeah, nothing real, real sentimental for me. I mean, it's all about the people and the... So, yeah, they were safe. I'm fine. You can replace clothes and any other artifacts. Good stuff. Uh, final question. When your time on this planet is done and somebody writes mm. a book about you, what would you like mm. the title to be? Uh, well, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about a title. You know, when people ask the question, I always think back to something my dad told me early in life and that stuck with me is, is he said, you know, that when we get to the end of our lives, the only thing people remember about us is our character. 
Mm. And that's always stuck with me is be a good person. I mean, that's, 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 I think the best thing you can aspire to in life is, is do that. Yep. So that's your epitaph. Be a, uh, he was a good person. Yeah, that'd work for me. I like it. Yeah, good stuff. Andy Paul, author of Sell Without Selling Out, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Paul, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 